The retirement and IRA show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier and Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. This is the Retirement and IRA Show coming to you from beautiful northern Colorado. Join us as certified financial planner Jim Saunier, as well as Colorado State University finance instructor and certified financial planner Chris Stein, teach you about IRAs, 401ks, annuities, social security, pension plans, and estate planning in a fun and enjoyable show. Whether you are listening live in Colorado or streaming from their website or iTunes podcast, Jim and Chris want you to know that they're available to help you plan for your retirement. Just visit their website at jimhelps.com. That's Jim, H-E-L-P-S dot com. And click the Meet the Team button on the homepage. Now here's Jim and Chris with today's show. Now welcome to the Retirement IRA Show Q&A edition for this week. We've got, uh, well, you've got questions you've sent in to us. I was about to say we had questions, but sometimes we do. But today, <laughs> most of what we're going to do are your questions with our answers. And uh, Jim's brought his pile of questions uh, with him. I'm sure we're going to start off with a Social Security question, as we always do, and then dive into some other stuff. If you want to send in your own questions uh, for consideration uh, on the show, best way to do that is to email Jim directly, jim at jimhelps.com. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S dot com. On there, uh, in the subject line, make sure you indicate it's for the podcast, and uh, we'll do our best to get you uh, an answer on the show here, or if not your answer... Um, Oftentimes we'll get a slurry of questions, all kind of the same, and we'll answer one of them, and and uh, it'll apply to you as well. So even when we don't answer your question, it's likely we'll answer a question substantially similar to yours. So, um, good morning, Jim. Morning, Chris, and good morning, everybody. Well, it might be afternoon by time they're listening to true, the podcast, true. but hello, everybody. Yeah. Uh, I am Jim, and that was Chris, and this is the Retirement and IRA Show Q&A edition. It's probably a good time to point out to people, too, that we are uh, recording ahead. We're recording extra shows ahead for uh, in anticipation of me being unable to record for a couple of weeks as I uh, take a little family vacation with my parents. Uh, my wife and I are going on vacation with my mom and dad, uh, doing a trip that my mom's had on her bucket list for the longest time, and we decided we wanted to do it before it was too late. So, Where are you uh, going? We are going on a European river cruise. Oh, that's right. That's so, right. Yep. So we're uh, so it doesn't disrupt the schedule of the podcast. We're recording ahead, and the reason I'm bringing it up is if there's been some type of world event or something that's happened that we don't mention on the show, that's why. <laughs> because we likely, as you're listening to this, this one we are recording at least a week before uh, you are hearing it, and others we might, re you know, when you've listened to them after this, they'll have been recorded a couple weeks before. So just uh, giving people a little heads up there. Well, very good. And when do you leave? 
in a couple of weeks here. So I leave uh, 26th of uh, July. Good. Okay. Two days after whose birthday? Um, let's see. 26, two days before is the 24th. Is this somebody's uh, trivia question for their state? No, 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 no. Some, someone, someone very important to you. Do you, is you think having I, a birthday. at this point now you harping on your birth date, especially such a big one? This is a big <laughs> birthday coming up. Um, that I'd forget it was on July twenty fourth. I don't know. You never know. You never know. Do you, okay. do you remember what kind of cake I want? Uh, the the lowest quality store bought <laughs> chocolate cake with white icing. That's it. You got it. Excellent. Excellent. Very good. All right. I've taught you well, young grasshopper. Thanks. What if they, I have a question. Would they, would it be acceptable if they were in the shape of cupcakes? So in other words, just cupcakes rather than a cake. Yeah, but chocolate with the white icing, but chocolate with the white cupcake icing. That, that would work. It's not as much effort, does it, you know, as a, as a cake where everybody's sitting around and singing happy birthday to me. That would, we can still do that. Hand. And then each, each person would have their own handheld <laughs> Handheld little piece of cake. Yes. Okay. As long as it's cheap. Okay. And I don't mean because I don't want to spend money on good quality confectionery products, folks. I just love, for some reason, the cheap store bought bakery cupcakes and and stuff. I don't eat that stuff anymore. I think I've shared with everybody. It's not a, a stroke thing. I started trying to eat much, much more healthier long before my stroke. Um, and I, I, I don't eat that crap anymore. But one day a year, I do, and that's uh, Chocolate Cake Day. Cheap Chocolate Cake Day, otherwise known as Jim's birthday. Even Rachel knows that. It's like, she's serious? You're going to eat that? I'm like, if, if you're going to get me something, it's got to be cheap cake from a store. Don't get me any thick German chocolate. Uh, what is that? Cream cheese frosting. Ugh, that's disgusting. <laughs> All righty. Um... Let's jump into this. I uh, hopefully will not have to start gassing flies again in the room like I did last Q&A show. Um, I will say, and if any listeners are out there, and I'm going to opine for one minute on this. If anybody can give me a hint. Chris, remember I told you last week I was trying to kill this one big fly that was buzzing mm-hmm. around, so I like gassed the room? Right. That was on a Friday. I went in the the dead animal room, which I affectionately call the sun room, uh, the next day. I kid you not, Chris, and listeners, I have big bay windows, big, it's because it's a, a cathedral ceiling. I have never seen more flies than I saw. There mm. were hundreds of them. Hundreds. I have no, they weren't in the house. They were, well, they were in the house, but just in this room, all in those windows, I guess, trying to get out. Because, you know, a fly on the inside wants to get out and a fly on the outside wants to get in. Where did they all come from? Hundreds, Chris. My, I, it, well, they hatch from eggs. But there's nothing dead and dying. I went into the basement. I looked around there. And here, I'll share a little bit more. I've been in this house for 12 years. This phenomenon, which was the worst this year than ever, and I'm wondering if it had anything to do with the rain, but for about the past six years, maybe five, six, seven years, somewhere around there, every summer around the end of June, beginning of July, this room would get a lot of flies. 
not hundreds, just dozens. And I would spray them. And then they, as quickly as they came, they would be gone. I have never seen as many. There's nothing rotting in my house. I have a clean house. I have a lady who comes and cleans it for me. I, I do not live like a slob. You got to trust me on that. I went into the basement thinking they're coming up from the basement because this, this room opens up into a, a uh, basement that's been, um, it's been torn apart since it flooded, but it's, it's a clean basement. No flies in the basement, none. No rotted animals, nothing in the crawl space. I went all through the crawl space thinking there's got to be something dead in here that's sending all these flies how do they get in this room? It's not like there were hundreds of flies flying through my house and just congregating in the far southern part of the house. And when I say that there were a lot, I, I kid you not, you are about to receive, Chris, a photo. Maybe you need to contact a priest. Aye. So anyways, folks, this was on Saturday. So I, I sprayed... And the whole, I mean, I fogged this room and I came back in a few hours later and it looked like a battlefield from the Civil War. It looked like Antietam or something like that, or, or the, the remnants of Pickett's Charge at Gettysburg. And there were just flies strewn across the room. I actually took a vacuum and started vacuuming them well, up. I hope this you was, did, yeah. This was Saturday. A couple of days later, I came into this room full of flies again. Mm. I had to spray yet again. And the photo I just sent you, Chris, which is a very small area, so you can describe to our listeners, I'm not exaggerating, but notice the very fresh vacuum marks. These are the second, this was the second Battle of Antietam. If anybody's a Civil War buff like me, you know there was Antietam, then the second Battle of Antietam. This was like the second battle. You can see all these little fly bodies clearly on top of the marks from the vacuum. My question, folks, if any entomologist is out there, where are these big black flies coming from? And why are they here? If anybody can help me, I'd appreciate it. <laughs> that's did an you get interesting the photo? start. To, I did, yeah. Yeah, that's a lot of flies. The, clearly, there's something that they're uh, uh, hatching in, and then they're ended up in that room. So I think you're probably victim mostly of a house from the 1960s that has places for them to creep and crawl in, and there might be something right outside that room that is a a, a, a nursery for baby flies, and then they. But don't flies inside, lay their so. eggs in dead things? They 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 just lay them in woodwork somewhere. I didn't know that. No, I'm saying it could be the dead thing could be right outside the room and then there's but there's spots in a house that old where they can get inside then. So that's just a guess, but a lot of flies though in that, that photo. There's a lot of flies, yeah. I would I would yeah. I'd fog regularly and stay out of that room until the <laughs> until the 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 curse has passed. <laughs> Anyways, if anybody has had a phenomenon similar to this and discovered what it was, I'd appreciate a heads up. Okay, that, that was it. That was, okay. I, I always, we, we reach out to our listeners because you have a lot of help, especially with the people who gave me advice on my back. Uh, I do greatly, greatly appreciate that. And of course, the people who supported me with the stroke and uh, anything like that. 
But this fly thing has me totally baffled. And when I say hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of flies, folks, I am not exaggerating. It took nearly a whole can. I have to go buy more ammo. My ortho spray is nearly gone. It it, it was crazy. It, it literally, I'm so glad Rachel wasn't here because she probably would have ended my relationship thinking I live like a pig. But uh, I have no idea where all these flies came from. Okay, enough of the flies. Thankfully. Thankfully. Okay, we're going to get into a social security question to begin, as we always do. Let me pull up the social security question that I want to send you. Okay. See if he gives a hint. Oh, he does. Okay. Interesting. I I will never guess it. Uh, It says, hi, Jim and Chris. My name is George, in quotation marks, and then he gives his real name. We'll call him George. The clue for the state I live in for Chris. The area code where I live is appropriately 321. That's a pretty cool area code, I got to admit. But he lives in the state with the area code 321. Two, one. Hmm. Oh, well, let me, let me, I see where he's going with that. I had to scroll down for the answer. Mm -hmm. Let me repeat his question because I left, I don't know if I said the word correctly. The area code where I live is appropriately three, two, one. That well, didn't help because that was the same thing you said before. Um, oh, perfect. I don't know. It's, it's appropriately. I mean, it sounds kind of like a countdown, but I don't know to what. <laughs> like, uh, uh, I guess it could be like the dropping of the ball in, in New York or something for New Year's Eve. Something yeah, but like New York doesn't have a three two one area code. That I can say. Oh, okay. Oh, was, uh, was that your answer? Was that your final answer? Well, I was. I was kind of working it out verbally. So, yeah, I don't know what else it would be other than that. He lives in Florida, so I'm guessing Cape Canaveral. Oh, yeah, the rocket launches, the countdown there. That makes sense. Yeah, that's cool. I didn't know that. That that is neat. Yeah, Whoever, he, yeah, yeah. He put. I live. I'll continue. I had to scroll down mm-hmm. to the bottom. I live in. Brevard, Brevard, Brevard County, Brevard, mm-hmm. Brevard County, mm-hmm. also known as the Space Coast, Florida. Mm-hmm. So that is appropriately three, yeah. two, one. Yeah, that's neat. Now I wonder if that was by chance. No. Or did? There's no way that was chance. Okay, so you think that was purposely? I, yeah, somebody they decided. Oh, that'd be really cool if that's what we made it when we created an area code for that region, that area. That's got to be that. That would be too much of a coincidence. Okay. All right. Anyways, he begins. I have a question about a widow collecting Social Security. I am actually a financial advisor, and this is a client of mine. I've listened to most of your podcasts over the last three to four years, but I'm still unclear about this. Her husband died about two years ago at age 56. He was the primary breadwinner, so he will have the largest Social Security. She has only worked as a part-time nurse. I have three questions regarding her Social Security. Do you need me to repeat anything? Have you got all that so Mm, far? No, wrote it down. Okay. 
She is going to want to claim his survivor benefit at the full amount possible. My understanding is she should wait to 67 to claim his benefit as a survivor. If she claims before 67, she will get a reduced survivor benefit. Am I correct? He asks two more questions. You want me to get to those? You want me to do one at a time? Uh, so far, yes. If if she wants it to be as large as possible, it will be as large as possible when she no longer is affected by early claiming, which means she needs to file for that survivor benefit when she reaches her full retirement age for survivor benefits, which may, I don't um, I didn't hear her birth year. So it may or may not be 67. So that's something you'd want to verify before just assuming it's 67. But um, I suspect it probably is if she was about the same age as her husband, um, then it, it should be 67. But just double check that because uh, it would be any, somewhere between 66 and 67, just like your full retirement age for retirement benefits. Uh, but uh, be aware that there are certain people born in certain years where the full retirement age for survivor benefits is slightly different, a few months different than the full retirement age for retirement benefits. So just be uh, aware of that. And there's you know plentiful tables on the internet. You can look that up. Uh, is that my cue to keep it. going? Yep. So that's the answer oh, to okay. the claiming it at 67. Okay, he said, I think this is true, what you, his question, I think this is true because I've heard you say survivor and regular benefits are separate pools, so waiting until 70 doesn't gain her any additional money. Right. Yeah, there's no delayed retirement credits that she can earn by waiting past her full retirement age for that survivor benefit, whereas her own benefit could be affected positively by delaying all the way up until 70. But the survivor but benefit, she has no way of pushing it higher than what it would be, in her case, at her full retirement age. So there's going right. to be no reason to wait past that. No, and her benefit is smaller than his, so I agree. Yeah, right. Okay, question two. I think she should start claiming her smaller personal benefit at 62, since she is only going to receive it for five years, 62 to 67. Am I thinking about this correctly? Uh, probably, probably. Um, the only thing that pops into my mind whenever you're talking about uh, claiming a 62 is she may or may not be able to receive one because of the earnings test. So if she's still working um, at 62 while she has eligible to receive it, she may not actually effectively get anything if she's making too much money as a part-time nurse. I know she's working part-time, but nurses usually, you know, get paid decently, so it's it's uh, uh certainly possible she could be making more than the earnings test. So, um that would be the only downside if you will, but it's it's not going to hurt anything even if it's reduced but not eliminated collecting something during that time knowing that um, you know, her early claiming of her own benefit will not and let me emphasize will not undermine or affect her survivor benefit ultimately. This is different than if she claimed her own early and then claimed a spousal benefit if her husband was still alive. 
that damage, if you will, that reduction for early claiming would extend into and affect the potential spousal benefit down the road. But that is not how survivor benefits work. Survivor benefits are a separate pool and are not affected by you choosing your own uh, claiming of your own benefit earlier. And that also, because of the separate pools, is what allows you to do exactly this. Because somebody might be out there screaming to their to their streaming device, hey, you can't. she can't claim just her own. She's going to be deemed to be filing for all benefits for which she's eligible. That is not true. That is not true in this case. Survivor benefits have their own on-off switch, and her own benefit has its own on-off switch. She can turn on one and then later turn on the other, and the choice on the one doesn't affect the other. So just be clear on that. And and so he's right on track, I think, here. The only gotcha would be if she's still working and the earnings test undermines what she'd be collecting at 62. Perfect. And his final question. Also, how will she find out, how will she be able to find out what her survivor benefit from her deceased husband's Social Security will be? Uh, she just needs to contact Social Security. She could... Um, uh, call uh, if uh, she wants to or go, or go into the office. I don't think they've yet allowed um, online for her to look up the benefit from his record through the online system. I could be wrong. They're adding things to that all the time, but I have not heard that you're able to do that. So I think she'll have to contact them. They hopefully will already have him, his social security connected to her as a spouse so they would freely give her her survivor benefit estimate. Uh, but if not, she might have to produce some documentation in the form of giving them his social security number and then a you know proof that they were married, a marriage certificate, something like that. That's usually worst case scenario. More often than not, if you were married in the past and married for a while, they already have record of that marriage. Um, but be prepared. If not, it's not the end of the world. Um, you just need to produce some documentation showing that, and then they will share with you what the survivor benefit right now is estimated to be. All righty. Sounds good. Um, perfect. I can get into another question here. Let me see. This one here, Chris and listeners is more like a, um, Public service announcement, PSA. Oh, okay. But I was really happy to see it, and I did not know about it. I heard mention, uh, Tom Gober mentioned, and I'll explain in a minute who Tom is. Last time I attended one of his presentations that he was going to be presenting before Congress, but I never really researched why. And anyways, we got this in. It kind of has to do with a question we recently had and one that we get. This kind of ties in in a roundabout way to uh, annuities, to private equity companies buying insurance companies, to being based in Bermuda or the Cayman Islands and the hokey finances they do. And um, the gentleman who had an issue that his... um, Pension was being taken over by Athene, a private equity-owned insurance company. And he was concerned because he was going to lose pension benefit guarantee corporation protections and be exposed to Athene and the risk of Athene being owned by private equity. And in Tom Gober's opinion, uh, one of the worst 
insurance companies as far as his proprietary TSR ratio goes. And do you remember that whole conversation we had maybe about four or five weeks ago? Mm -hmm. I do. Okay. We got this email in, and thank you, listener, for bringing this to our attention. I am am a relatively new listener to your podcast and find it very worthwhile investment of my time twice a week. This email is in reference to the question regarding pension risk transfer to an offshore-based private equity-backed insurance company from your Tennessee listener last month. It was quite eye-opening, as I am a retired Lockheed Martin employee receiving monthly payments under their plan. Fortunately, mine has not been de-risked and sold, and he put in parentheses, as of yet. During that segment, you and Chris mused that there was a potentially serious ERISA issues here, and it turns out that in the SECURE Act Two, it directed the Department of Labor to look into this very practice Hmm. and determine whether further amendments to ERISA are warranted. As part of this action, it directed the Department of Labor to consult with the Advisory Council on Employee Welfare and Pension Benefit Plans. The first of those meetings will take place July 18th. I also attached a PDF schedule of the commentators. Note that Tom Gober is scheduled to appear at 12.30 p.m. Hmm. And I like that. Now I know what Tom is testifying in front of Mm -hmm. Congress about. Yeah, that's that's encouraging that that's being looked into. I've become more and more mortified as I've heard about this practice. Where we're going with this, folks, is insurance plays a major role in retirement planning. If you're going to be a competent retirement planner as a financial advisor, if you are listening and you want to call yourself a retirement planner and truly concentrate on retirement planning, you cannot ignore insurance. Life insurance as, as we talked about previously on this show, may be important, not as a life insurance, as a retirement plan, but as protection to a special needs child or to provide liquidity or estate equalization or for any number of reasons. Long-term care insurance can play a role, but so do annuities. And we like, as everyone knows, income annuities. We don't recommend you run out and buy them right away. You, you heard us talk about this ad nauseum. I don't want to get into it. But when it comes time to purchasing insurance, especially retirement insurance, life insurance to stay and pay out at your death, because at your death, someone's going to suffer an economic or financial hardship, long-term care insurance, because hopefully not early in your retirement, but in the latter years of your retirement, you need to hire people to take care of you, or an income annuity or additional secure income to cover your minimum dignity floor, which we believe passionately in. But that too is insurance that is supposed to last a very, very long time. Hopefully we don't want you passing away early. We all know some people do. So understanding the insurance company you are buying this protection from becomes crucial. 
I shared with everybody when I answered this question for this person, uh, originally the Tennessean, uh, whose pension has been bought out by Athene, that I have been following a gentleman named Tom Gober. And there's another guy, and I can't remember his name, and he's kind of the leader of it all, but I apologize to him. I doubt he listens to my podcast. Um, I, I can't, You know me, Chris. I'm terrible with names, so I can't remember his name. The two of them, <clears throat> he's very big. The, the, not Tom, but the other gentleman. It, it does a lot of work with very, very, very wealthy people, writes very, very, very big life insurance policies, to help cover their estate taxes. So it gives you an idea of how wealthy these people are that they have to pay estate taxes. So he decided to hire Tom Gober once when he read an article that mentioned Tom to kind of do some forensic accounting on the insurance companies that he was considering using for these policies that he needed to make sure would be around in 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 years when needed. So far, so good, Chris? Yeah. Follow the logic? Yep, totally. So he, he hired Tom on his own because Tom is a forensic accountant. And he shares the story that Tom and he ended up talking for hours on that first meeting. And as Tom started doing his research on the insurance companies that he was considering and sending him dozens and dozens and dozens of pages he shared it was all gobbledygook to him he couldn't make heads or tails out of it so they started looking at some of the measures that tom was considering transparency surplus and risk risk being risky assets that the insurance company is disclosing they own surplus which is the excess money an insurance company is supposed to maintain above the, the policy debts that they're required to pay. And of course, transparency. Are they burying all this stuff through offshore conglomerates, overseas-based businesses, all the hokey stuff that these companies do? And the two of them together thought, well, yeah, maybe having 36 pages of a report on one company was quite a bit. We can simplify this. And they came up with a concept called the TSR ratio. Transparency, surplus to risk. Risk, again, being not the risk of the insurance company. The assets that the insurance company is fully disclosing meet the uh, SEC and NAIC's definition of, of, excuse me, Federal Reserve's definition of high-risk assets. And that ratio is supposed to be a measure. The higher the ratio, the more hokey, less transparent balance sheet manipulation going on. That if, and it's a big if, some of the risk assets that they are disclosing they own that are not traditional assets for insurance companies, how much of a loss on those risk assets could occur before the company is essentially bankrupt because of all the leverage. And Tom started sharing that as he researched more, some of the reinsurers that these insurance companies were using were actually owned by them and or were impossible for Tom to research. He couldn't figure out hide or hair of these companies Yet 
these insurance companies were passing billions of policyholder liabilities over to. And he couldn't determine, is this company even going to be able to pay these liabilities? And he started speaking up about this. So that's Tom Gober. Now, if you're an insurance agent or an advisor, I would recommend you look into the TSR ratio to learn. I am very hesitant to use the ratio. And I've shared openly some of my concern with it. They cannot articulate what a reasonable TSR ratio is. They admit they randomly chose 400, but they did not base that on anything except the number sounded good. I want a little bit more analysis on what a reasonable TSR ratio is and also some very, very, very good companies that I like have TSR ratios close to or even slightly above 400. And does that mean I should no longer use them when other companies have ratios of 3,000, 4,000, 5,000, or Athene, which currently is the leader as the worst TSR ratio at over 8,000? So there's not enough information yet on what a reasonable ratio is. So I use their knowledge to learn the hokey crap these insurance companies are doing. And sadly, some of the worst offenders are private equity-owned insurance companies. And it's just opening my eyes. There's a lot of advisors who listen to this. And if you push a lot of equity-indexed annuities, I can guarantee you, you are selling annuities owned or offered by private equity-owned insurance companies. I'm not worried if you're only selling an equity indexed annuities for three, four, five years or a multi-year guaranteed annuity, a MIGA for three, four, five years, and you're staying below the state guarantee accounts. And even the TSR people, Tom and the guy whose name I can't remember when I shared this with them uh, at an Ed Slot meeting, that's where I first met the two of them. They too don't really worry about a two, three, four, five year. They want advisors to use their ratio when selling a lifetime stream of income or a life insurance policy that must pay out at some point in the future. Making sure those insurance companies are going to be here and be able to pay out the guarantees being offered, especially with the state guarantee funds offering relatively little If you're selling a multi-million dollar life insurance policy and your state guarantee fund guarantees 250,000, Chris, not much protection there at all, is there? No, that's out of balance for sure. So that's the TSR and that's Tom Gober. Tom Gober is making a name for himself in this and I'm happy to see that he will be testifying before Congress on this. And I hope this leads to stricter rules on ERISA to keep companies from selling an ERISA-protected pension plan backed by the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation, otherwise known as the federal government, to an insurance company, private equity-owned or not, that might be based in Bermuda or the Cayman Islands, using gap accounting instead of the more stringent SAP accounting and balance sheet manipulation that could pose serious risks 
to pensioners five, 10, 15, 20 years mm-hmm. from now when they're at least going to be able to even understand what's happening, let alone fight it. Yep. Anyways, I, I digress. That's good. I'm but glad, I thought I'm that was good that information. Yeah. So thank you, listener, to that. And any advisor who sells insurance, look into the TSR ratio. Uh, try to learn from them. Again, I'm hesitant to just abjectly say, oh, TSR above 400, I'm not using. Uh, no way. And they even concede, don't just do that. And then again, off to the side, which I always say, uh, the gentleman whose names I can't understand does push products and makes money off of advisors buying products that he creates with insurance companies with low TSR ratios. Um, and I don't like that. I, I think the TSR ratio should not also distribute or, or push product. I think they need to put a Chinese wall between those two business practices uh, and, and keep the TSR ratio what it's supposed to be and say, hey, on the side, we have also an insurance distribution platform where we only use products from low TSR ratio providers. And yes, we are going to make money uh, if you go ahead and buy them. I really wish they would separate the two better. Yeah. Okay. okay. Sounds good. That's it. Alrighty, let's get to the next question. But but well, wait, wait, wait. You know what? Hold hold on. Pause. I'm going to keep going. I'm looking at that document. I will listen to sent us for the PSA, Chris. Tom Gober test. This is interesting. Gober is going to testify at twelve thirty. Athene testifies at one thirty. The CEO of Athene and Gober have had kind of a little spat because Athene disagrees with Gober's assessment of uh, 8,000 plus TSR ratio. And Mm -hmm. and again, I don't even know if Athene even supports or acknowledges the TSR ratio. I'm curious, do they, does everybody wait in like a green room or something behind the scenes together? I wonder if Tom and the Athene people are going to be in the same room. I I think they're in the the, audience and then they come up. Oh, are they in the audience and then they come up? Mm -hmm. Okay. Curious, just interested in that, that uh, Athene is there. Yeah, Tom doesn't have many nice things to say about Athene. He, but he claims, he claims he's just taking it all from their, their disclosures and he's looking at things and he's asking very hard questions. And, and God bless him. But interesting that he testifies and then, <laughs> then Athene testifies. Um, okay, but hopefully good will come from this, Chris, and they're going to put a stop to people losing ERISA protection and benefit, uh, PBGH, Pe- Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation, protections if their uh, pension, quote-unquote, de-risks and sells it to an insurance company. Um, okay, anyways, we beat that horse to death. I want to uh, move on from that. Okay, this next one, Bob, is an RMD question. Oh, oh, again, hold on. Hot off the presses. Except by time you hear this, folks, it's going to be well off the presses. Everyone listening to this, by time you hear this, should know this, especially if you're a Vanguard VGer. You better have heard this. But, Chris, this might be brandy new to you. It literally popped into my iPad as I was waiting for you uh, to get ready. Guess what the IRS just announced? I mean, literally, today is July 14th, 2023. We're recording this at 2.48 in the afternoon. They announced this about an hour ago. 
I don't Google it. No. Do I ever? You <laughs> say that I constantly. Know. I never do that. I can't do see you. Um, it's going to tick you RM, off, too. Is it RMDs for it's an RMD inherited, thing, yep. inherited IRAs? Did you know? Or are you just guessing? Cause no, because that's, that's, the, the, that's the most annoying thing that's been going on. It's an ongoing saga that has bothered people and people waited and waited and waited for them. And yeah, did they extend it and forgive the 2023 RMDs for? So that's what they did, folks. So oh, Chris, Lord. you're spot on. Clap, 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 star in your forehead, pat yourself on the back, the whole nine yards. As people should know, when secu- Secure One passed three years ago, folks, and they still, still don't have the final rules. Anybody who's hanging their hat that in January of 2024, they're going to have Secure 2 all figured out? Man, do I want to sell you some oceanfront property in Arizona. Especially those of you who are waiting for clarity on Section 204 of the, or it might be 207, 204 or 7, I forget at this point, of Secure Act 2, which claims if you have an annuitized annuity, or in other words, an annuity paying you a lifetime stream of income and there's no longer a contract value. If you have an annuitized annuity held inside an IRA wrapper, you will be able to somehow mystically and magically determine what the net present value of that annuity IRA would be as a lump sum, then determine what the RMD on that lump sum should have been, Compare it to what you are taking out from the annuity, which, Chris, as you know, would be larger because of the embedded interest and mortality credits of an annuity. Subtract the two and any excess be allowed to use to offset other IRAs you have. Chris, do you really think by January 1st they're going to have this all figured out? (laughs) Clearly not. Because they still can't figure out the damn rules about the stretch or the death of the stretch. This has been going on for three years. So in case you don't know, because it is by time you hear it, about 11, 12 days old. But in case you're just listening now, the IRS has announced that for 2023 and 2023 only, they are waiving the penalty on not taking an RMD from an inherited IRA post-secure. So if you inherited an IRA pre-January 1st of 2020, this does not apply to you. Post-secure for non-eligible designated beneficiaries. Clear as mud, folks? What does that mean in English? If you are allowed post-secure to stretch your RMD, meaning you were the spouse of the decedent IRA owner, you are the minor child of the decedent IRA owner, you are a disabled beneficiary of the deceased IRA owner, you are a terminally ill beneficiary of the deceased IRA owner, or you're someone who inherited the IRA from the owner, but you are either older than the person who died or not more than 10 years younger. Again, clear as mud, folks. If you're any of those five categories, you can stretch, and the rules have not changed for you. It's everyone else. Pretty much anybody who inherits an IRA from their parent, that's who's not a minor. 
is going to be impacted by this and, and other people as well, obviously. But the, the, the lion's share is going to be your children who inherit IRAs. They always thought they didn't have to take any RMD from year one through nine of inheriting it. They just had to close it in year 10 in one lump sum. Then two years into secure, the IRS comes out and says, nah, that's not quite the way we interpret things. If the person who died was past their required beginning date, and Chris, explain what that is. That is April 1st of the year following your initial RMD is due. Right, and I'm glad you put it that way rather than a stated age because Mm -hmm. they keep changing the age. So today the required beginning date is April 1st of the year following the year you turned 73. If the person who died died before their required, excuse me, died after their required beginning date, and then you inherited it, and you are not one of those five categories that are allowed to stretch under the pre-secure rules, you had been told two years into secure, oh, by the way, you were supposed to take RMDs because we have the ALAR rule. Do you remember what ALAR is, Chris? At least as rapidly. At least as rapidly, which is actually in the IRC code. And that's what the IRS is hanging their hat on, saying, under this 10-year rule, we're going to say ALAR applies, and you must continue taking RMDs, at least as rapidly. That's what they're basing it on. But they said last year, hey, it took us two years to figure this out, so we're going to waive the penalty for anyone who was supposed to take an RMD in 2021 and 2022. The reason they didn't waive it for 2020 is you don't take your first RMD until the year following the death of the IRA owner. So they said 2021 or 2022, we're going to waive the penalty. They never waived or said, we don't feel you need to take the RMD. They just said, we're not going to impose a penalty. So by default, and in this press release that the IRS released, they concede because they have waived the penalty, it would not be out of the realm for someone to assume the RMD is not required. Why don't they just come out and say that? Because they don't want to say it. They don't want to admit it. This just drives me nuts. Yeah. So 2021 and 2022, they never said you don't have to take it. They just said there's no penalty. Everybody assumed no penalty, then you don't have to take it. They just came out and said they're waiving the penalty, but it would not be wrong. I wish I was making this up for someone to assume you don't have to take the penalty, says, according to the Wall Street Journal, an IRS spokesperson. Gee, Thanks. But they also went to great lengths to say this only applies for 2023. So this, first of all, if you took an RMD from an inherited IRA because you thought, based on what the IRS said already, you're going to have to if you fall into that category of a non-eligible designated beneficiary inheriting an IRA from someone who died after their required beginning date, you're going to be ticked off right now because you can't get that IR, excuse me, that RMD back in. It's like toothpaste from the tube. You can't even do a 60-day rollover because you have a spouse, excuse me, a, a beneficiary IRA, an inherited IRA. You cannot roll over 
any distributions from an inherited IRA. So if you took your RMD, you're stuck. I would go so far as to say anybody listening at this point, I'm throwing up my hands and going, oy vey. Don't take your RMD next year, 2024, until December. Because I don't think the IRS knows it's, it's you know what, from its elbow. It, it's, it's, I don't know, hot off the press, at least as of the day we're recording this. They still can't figure it out. And for those of you, I know we got several emails from you waiting for clarity on Section 204 and uh, annuitized annuities offsetting RMDs. Don't hold your breath on that one mm-hmm. because they they have to come up with a uniform way, a uniform implied rate of return, what mortality tables someone needs to use. All these calculations need to go into effect to figure out the lump sum value of an annuitized annuity. And who does the calculation, Chris, the insurance company or the IRA owner? Nobody knows. So don't hold your hat on 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 getting that that done. Okay, just figured I'd go down that little tangent. Yeah, we got PSAs is, left and right today. You have PSAs all over the place here, and I can actually do another PSA, but I'm going to hold off. But I'm going to give a shout out to the guy I've been communicating with today. Uh, as Chris and I took a break in between recording the the show, so you you won't notice, but he and I did because he had a meeting, and then someone emailed me about POA forms from our last show. And some confusion he's getting, yet again, from Charles Schwab. Hmm. So very interesting what this man is finding. And I'll share it on a future show. I need to do my own uh, research. Just confusion out there beyond belief on a lot of this from the people in charge. So how can the rest of us minions do things right if the people in charge have no idea what's going on? Okay, this person lives uh, in a state. The hint will be uh, real easy. Uh, again, he doesn't give us a hint, but I'll give you one, Chris. It's in the state you and I live in. Mm. Drum roll, please. Right now, it's Colorado. Colorado. Greetings from a suburban Denver, as Jim would say it. So, yes, a, su- oh, so a suburb of Denver, as Jim would say it. Do I, I don't pronounce it that bad, do I, Denver? It's... D E N V A R uh, D no see no you can't even D-E-N-V- spell it D E N V E R see here I go I, I'm all riled up on the IRS thing I can't even spell Denver right okay anyways I am fifty eight I am fifty eight so I have a few years until I need to get Social Security or have any RMD issues if you're fifty eight. Yeah, theoretically, you have four years before Social Security. I have no idea if you'll delay it. But you're not going to have to worry about RMDs until you're 75. And Lord only knows if they'll change it even yet again. Uh, Because if you're 58 now, you won't have to take your first RMD until you're 75. So you're looking at 17 years, listeners. you got quite some time to worry about RMDs. Hopefully by then, Chris, they'll have figured it out Secure Act uh, as well. Well, you're just relentless today. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, he says, I am confident I have sufficient assets where I won't have to take money out of my retirement account until those RMDs kick in. And I don't think I will have to take Social Security until I reach my maximum benefit at age 70. So very good listener. I opened a Roth IRA this year and moved a little bit of money in there. I plan to convert 
each of the subsequent years until my RMDs begin. I will still have a balance, though, in my traditional IRA. So let's pause there, Chris, and just say he's doing tax planning. Would you agree? Sounds like it, yeah. Yeah. He's planning with tax planning window. He knows he's going to have to take RMDs at 75. He's going to be forced to take money out of his accounts. He's starting to do some conversions. Maybe he's going to max out a bracket. Maybe he's going to take advantage of the lower brackets until January 1st of 2026. Who knows? But he intends to be converting now until RMDs begin. I have a few questions about my strategy. Will RMDs be required for my Roth IRA? You can handle that one, Chris. No. Under current rules, there's no RMDs on Roth IRAs. Nope, that is perfect. Now, inherited Roth IRAs. Also, no RMDs. Under secure, we now know for certain there are no RMDs on an inherited Roth IRA. I'm glad you pointed that out because we always had that exception before. Mm -hmm. Right. Now, if you are stretching an inherited Roth IRA, you are one of the eligible designated beneficiaries, as I just ranted about about 15 minutes ago. If you're one of those five classes, yes, you will have RMDs. But if you inherit a Roth IRA and you are a non-eligible designated beneficiary subject to the 10-year rule, you technically do have RMDs. You have one, One, and it's a big one, and it's in the 10th year after you inherit it. Irrespective of the age of the decedent, this is where Roths differ greatly from traditional IRAs. Because in all this mess that the IRS clearly still hasn't figured out because they've yet again delayed their rule by waiving a penalty on a missed RMD for non-eligible designated beneficiaries who inherit post-secure, they are hanging their hat and saying, if someone dies after their required beginning date, then RMDs will apply for year one through nine. If someone dies before their required beginning dates, RMDs will not apply in year one through nine. In both cases, any remaining balance in the IRA must be taken in year 10 by December 31st. Chris, when is the required beginning date for a Roth IRA? If you own a Roth IRA, when is your required beginning date? Does not exist. Precisely. The required beginning date, folks, is the date you must start taking your RMD out. There are no RMDs while you are alive in an IRA you own. So by default, irrespective of how old you are when you die, you will always die before your required beginning date, If in the case of a Roth IRA, because there is no required beginning date. So your beneficiary subject to the 10-year rule, which will most likely be your adult child, won't have to take any money out of that Roth for 10 years. Now, in year 10, they have to take everything out. I concede that. 
but they will be able to keep that Roth open for a minimum of nine years, continuing to grow tax-free. And who knows how much of the 10th year, uh, by the end of the 10th year, rather. So it doesn't matter. By the end of the 10th year, they have to close it. So they could wait theoretically till December 31st. That's pushing it. But they could get the entire 10th year in. Or they might close it earlier in the year just to be safe. So do keep that in mind to this listener and all listeners. There are no RMDs from Roths while you are alive. Okay. Where is that question now? I was so anxious. I closed the email. There it is. Okay. Question two. If I do have to take an RMD, is it calculated the same way as from my traditional IRA? You don't have to take one, listener, so don't worry about it. And final question. Am I correct in understanding that the RMD age for me is going up to age 75? You are correct in your understanding, listener, as I already said. Your RMD age will be 75. Now, that's still, uh, for you, you're only 58. That's 17 years from now. Pay attention over the next 17 years. I'm sure they're going to play with that yet again. Maybe in an effort to gain revenue, they lower RMD ages in the future. Maybe they're going to extend it. But right now, you have 17 years till age 75. Thank you for the podcast, and thanks for the great information. Nice. Good okay. one. Mm-hmm. Anything you want to say about that? No, those are uh, those were nice, clean, procedural-style questions, so I think you covered them quite well. Wow, is that a compliment? Yeah, as long as we don't do any more PSAs today. Well, that one was more of a question about a PSA. <laughs> But the PSAs, not only were PSAs, but we expanded upon them. We went down the rabbit hills, as we always say. The rabbit hills? Huh? The holes. Oh. Did I say hill? Yeah. I thought there was a new thing we were doing now. It's all good. Rabbit hill? No. I think I... No, I think I... Uh, we went over that hill. I don't, I don't know what the hell I was thinking. It's a Friday afternoon. Cut me some slack. <laughs> okay. Next question. If I can pull it up, if I can find it. Okay. Nope, I already answered that one. All right, this one's going to be more for you, Chris. How's that? Totally fine. Perfect. Okay. He Does he have a hint? Oh, yeah. Okay. He lives in the state whose state flower is the dogwood. Hmm. I always thought that was a tree, not a flower. Anyways. In fact, I know dogwood is a tree, but I never heard of a dogwood flower. Does Anyways, a dogwood tree have flowers on it? Dogwood tree does have flowers on it. Hmm. Jeez. I don't know where dogwood is prolific. Um, I'm going to say... Um, New Hampshire. Mm. No. At least you get the East Coast. I was waiting for you to come up. You had, at least you're east of the Mississippi. Uh, he is from the state of Virginia. Hmm. Hi, Jim, Chris, and seldom heard from Junior Junior. I don't think seldom is even a good. I, I don't think Junior Junior has ever been on the podcast. Do you? I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think we've ever. I don't think we've talked about the juniors, but we've never brought them on. 
Okay, longtime faithful listener and shameless, Jim is brilliant and Ohio and Kentucky are awesome. So you can clearly see he wants his question answered. Thank you, listener. I am brilliant and Ohio and Kentucky are awesome. Um, at least I think they're awesome, except right now I've been looking at the humidity out there. Oh, my Lord. I thought um, you liked that stuff. Well, I like green. I don't necessarily care for humidity, but I will deal with it for a month or two. Okay, here is my question. As I understand it, and this is why I want you to answer it, it has to do with Irma. Mm-hmm. As I understand it, assuming your Irma Magi two years ago was below this year, 2023's, threshold of 194000 and also assume that I am married filing joint. You will not pay any Irma surcharges even if you do a huge Roth conversion. A 2023 Roth conversion may, however, trigger Irma in 2025. Do you want to add some clarity to what he's saying here first? Or do you want me to keep Yeah, I think it's question? a little... Um, a little sloppy on how well, he works. Well, just it might lead people to the wrong conclusions. So when he says, even if you do a Roth conversion, Roth conversion creates income, taxable income, which will increase your MAGI, your M-A-G-I, your modified adjusted gross income. Uh, and it's, it is your modified adjusted gross income that determines your IRMA bracket. So a Roth conversion can. It's just about timing. And where what he was talking about as you read through that is he was saying that um, his Maggie two years ago, 2021, was below the threshold which for application of Medicare premium surcharges, or IRMA, for 2023, the first tier is at $194,000 for a married filing joint couple. So if he indeed does a Roth conversion this year in 2023, it will not affect his 2023 IRMA. They've already determined that. It was determined by his 2021 Maggie. Was that my cue? Yes, sir. Okay, I wasn't sure. You know what we should do? The, as you were chatting, I was thinking of things. We got a lot of um, Irma-style questions in. Let's do an EDU show, maybe next week or after you get back. I don't know. Let's do an EDU show where you can explain a little bit more of Irma, what Irma is, because mm-hmm. it is okay. going to impact a lot of our listeners. Mm-hmm. And then I can uh, start getting through a bunch of the Irma questions we have as well. Okay. Sound good? Sounds like a good idea. Irma is... Uh... Much confused by people. Okay. So he continues. I retired in 2022 and turned 65 early this year, 2023. My initial IRMA notice from Social Security put me in a high IRMA tier for 2023. I, of course, have filed SSA Form 44, and provided an income estimate to include a 2023 Roth conversion, which will put me in Irma Tier 1. This may trigger Irma in 2025, but fortunately before my wife claims Medicare. Do you want me to pause there before I get to his main question? Um, anything you want to add on that or, or no. not? No, not yet until I hear what he's going to ask. Okay. If my math is correct then I think your listeners should understand that doing a Roth conversion in a year when you also filed 
form SSA44, and you may need to explain to listeners what that is, Chris, can trigger two years of IRMA. Often we hear that doing a Roth conversion will only trigger one year of IRMA. Kind regards, and he gives his real name, but we will call him George. Yeah. I think we spoke about this in the past. Yeah, he's got a good point. I think it'll give us a chance to explain it again. Um, I'm going to use his year just to be cons- years cons- to be consistent with his question so people have the least potential for confusion, I guess. So typically, so let's assume he hasn't filed an SSA 44, which is the form that you file to ask for relief from Irma if you have had a life-changing event, such as income reduction, which retirement is a form of income reduction. So, uh, and there's other reasons on that uh, form as well. So without that in play, 2021 earnings, or Maggie, is going to be considered for your 20. 23 Irma and thus you know 2023 Maggie will be considered for his 2025 Irma that's under normal circumstances so he is correct that in 2023 if you were to do a Roth conversion that doesn't affect your 2023 Medicare it affects your 2025 Medicare if it pushes you up into an Irma bracket that's under standard situation with no SSA 44 in play as soon as you file SSA 44, now you've got to worry about a, a, a scenario where you will have asked the IRS to use more recent information for Maggie instead of the default two years ago. But then if you do a Roth conversion in the year that you claimed your, in, your income was going to be lower and that pushes you up higher, that's what he's talking about. It can undermine, it can essentially undo the benefits you would have gotten from the SSA 44. Now, he effectively avoided a surprise because he knew this was going to happen, and he included the Roth conversion for 2023 when he gave the Social Security Administration the estimate for his earnings for 2023 when he asked them on SSA 44 to use 2023's earnings to determine his IRMA for 2023 because of his life-changing event in 2022 when he retired. He was allowed to ask for that. But his Roth conversion did get factored in in applying the Medicare because because you were asking them to do so. You were asking them to ignore 2021, instead use this year as your measurement for Maggie, and they let you do that. So it also comes back to bite you two years later when they're looking at the 2023 Maggie for 2025 application of Irma. So he's absolutely right. And so you should go into this eyes wide open. Just remember it. If that was hard to follow that whole chain of events, if you're filing SSA 44, be careful of doing tax planning and involving a Roth conversion in a year that you told them your income was going to be lower. Don't undermine that with a conversion unknowingly. And then you essentially don't get the benefits of filing the SSA 44. So that's kind of the warning in this story is to be aware that if you ask them to look at a different year, pay attention to the income that you're going to be recognizing in that year because it could affect you. Fair enough. Was that your full answer? Full and final answer? That's my full and final answer. Okay. I think you can answer this one too. 
in 10 words or less. That's good because we don't have much time. Oh, good. Okay. All righty. Well, I'm going to go out on a limb and say you will definitely get the hint of where this person lives. You ready? Mm -hmm. I am from the Lone Star State. Oh. I don't know how long it took them to, to come, come up, up with, with that this hint. hint. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I hope they didn't spend all night on it. They probably Googled but, it. Uh, <laughs> so that would be the state of Texas. The fine state mm -hmm. of Texas. Mm -hmm. uh, thank you for at least for a hint, listener. Mm -hmm. Okay, your Retirement and IRA show podcast is my favorite. I really appreciate the rabbit holes and the technical details you and Chris provide. I know you stated your team can drill down and find an answer if anyone can, so here it goes. Under Secure Act 2, and I thought we mentioned this in the past, Chris. Under Secure Act 2, it changed Roth 401k and 403b accounts to where they will no longer have to have required minimum distributions taken from them. Mm -hmm. But I can find nothing that specifically states whether Roth 457b accounts will also have that change to their requirement. It seems that since these are all Roth accounts, it should be treated the same way. I agree, and the IRS agreed. And so a Roth, 457, so yes, yeah, Roth 457 does not have RMDs either. Yes, Absolutely. Um, do you have time for one more quick one? We can keep playing this really quick that, game. Or, that was or pretty quick, so I guess we can squeeze one more in. All righty. This one I know we can get as well. They, too, are from the fine state of Colorado. We will not give a hint because it's a state that Chris and I live in. I live in Colorado. Oh, excuse me. Hi, Jim and Chris. I live in Colorado, and I fund the Colorado 529 for my grandchildren. However, I have one stubborn child that refuses to give me the social security numbers of her children so I can set up 529 plans for them. But I do not want to shortchange these grandchildren. I'm going to encourage whatever parent that is. You'll never protect private information. I guess you can protect it for a little while. I think some of the best advice Chris ever gave me was years ago that I didn't follow that I should just assume my ID has already been stolen 10 times to Sunday and put a credit freeze on. Um, I have done that because my credit, as you all know, earlier this year was stolen and someone tried to open multiple loans uh, in my name. But I now have credit freezes and sleep a lot calmer at night. I don't think not giving a social security number to someone who wants to open beneficiary accounts for your child well, you're assuming that's it. the reason, but it probably is the True. reason, Maybe but it not. isn't necessarily okay. the reason. But it's, yeah, you're not going to protect your child's social security number. <laughs> no, it's going to get stolen. By the time Sooner they get into later, school, it uh, it's, it's going to be out there. But by the, time they even, by the time they have assets of their own that someone would want to target, it'll be widely available. It's, it's just the way it is, unfortunately. And I would encourage everyone listening, put credit freezes on your credit and just don't deal with it anymore. Okay, question. Can I set up a 529 with myself as the beneficiary? And when my oldest grandchild, again, talking to grandchildren whose social security numbers she doesn't have, and when my oldest grandchild reaches college age, probably their junior year of college, I transfer half 
of the account that's in my name to her own 529. And then when the other grandchild reaches college age, again in their junior year, I transfer the remaining 520 balance for her use for college. Let me pause there. You can you can do what you're saying, but not in the manner in which you're wanting to do it. And we are not experts in 529 plans. So if I say anything that's not quite right, please bring it to my attention. Don't vilify me over it. I'm freely admitting this is not where Chris and I normally wade, if you will. Uh, we uh, retirement distribution planners, not college saving planners. But I know enough about these things to sometimes get me in trouble. But you cannot transfer a 529 literally as you're describing. Your own 529 where you are the owner and the beneficiary, which is perfectly legal to do, to then transfer some of it to someone else, tax and penalty free, into their own 529. It does not work that way. But what you can do is change the beneficiaries Mm -hmm. on your 529. Right. So when your first granddaughter reaches the age you want her to be able to get access to the money, which you said is her junior year of college, and I believe there's a reason for that. It has something to do with student loans, but I'm not even going to go down that rabbit hole. But I, I vaguely remember there's a reason for that, for grandparents to do this in the junior year. You will simply name that grandchild as 50% beneficiary of the account, You can remain 50% beneficiary of the remaining balance, if you'd like, until the next grandchild is eligible. And then that grandchild, who's now in her junior year of college, can take a withdrawal. You can change the beneficiary of 529 accounts at any time. That's my point. To me, that's the only way she can do this, Chris. Mm -hmm. You work for a university. You have like 47 kids. So you've done this a few times. Maybe you have other clarity that I didn't pick up on. No, I think that's the same thing. And there there is a nuance with changing the beneficiary on a 529 to a generation that's much lower than the original beneficiary, which can create a a gifting issue. And when I say issue, only for someone who's dealing with, you know, exceeding the lifetime gift uh, and estate limits, which is unlikely for most people. So which is 12.9 million, right? Yeah, now. I, I, men- I mentioned it just because there is a little thing there, which again, I'm, I'm not an expert in this other than I've, you know, I've run across a couple 529s, but we're, we're focused on an older generation where uh, typically aren't dealing with a lot of education planning. So, uh, and at the university, I don't, deal with funding uh i i delivered the product (laughs) at at the university so uh i don't have all the nuances but i was going to point out the same thing jim did it's it's you don't transfer it into another account it's just naming a beneficiary and you can change the beneficiary and you can change it back to yourself as the owner of the 529 you can change the beneficiaries and uh it sounds like that's the direction you should go if you wanted to establish it now and start funding it you'd be able to build it up and then assign them as beneficiary when the time comes. Right. And if you want to keep it clean, you might want to open two 529s instead of one. Yeah. 
one for one child, one for the other. That way you only have to name that one child as beneficiary rather than yeah. them trying to share one 529. Makes it so a little easier to keep you, it fair if you're yeah. trying to keep the numbers separate as, as yep. one starts to take money out. Exactly. So I would encourage you to open two 529 plans and there's no rule against it. And again, being in Colorado, you most and listening to this podcast, you're probably a Vanguard VG or or some type of, of do-it-yourselfer, whether you're at Vanguard or not. But Colorado's 529 plan for the do-it-yourselfers is actually offered by and managed by Vanguard and has some very, very, very low-cost options in there. So I would encourage you to open your own directly, then go through a broker. There are brokers in Colorado uh, who sell these as well. Uh, you will not have access to Vanguard. I forget which uh, commission-based uh, mutual fund firm uh, manages it, but you will pay a 3% commission if you open it through a, a broker or a registered rep or, or an advisor who wants to take a fee, whatever the case may be, uh, you will have to pay a 3% commission. So do keep that in mind. You might want to do it yourself, and Vanguard makes it super easy and provides a wealth of information. I haven't been on their website in a long time, Colorado's website, but when I used to look around it, I was impressed with how easy uh, they made it for do-it-yourselfers to save the 3%. Okay. Perfect. That's all I have to say. Okay. Well, that'll wrap it up for today on the Q&A show. If you've got your own questions you want to send in for the show, just uh, email them directly to Jim. Jim at jimhelps.com is the email address and put in the subject line that it is a question for the podcast. And we'll do our best to get it answered on the air for you. And uh, Jim, you have a nice uh, weekend. And we'll be back with everybody else next week with a brand new show. You have listened to Jim on the radio read his quotes in the media, and enjoyed his banter on iTunes. But even now you may wonder what sets Jim Salmier and Associates apart from other financial planning companies. The answer is quite simple. Jim's diverse team of professionals specializes in retirement planning. They form a lifelong relationship with you and measure their success not through product sales, but through the security and prosperity you may achieve in your retirement. Jim's entire team shares his unwavering commitment to placing their clients' best interests first while offering their services at fair prices with full disclosures. The professionals at Jim Saunier & Associates are available to assist you with your retirement planning needs. Visit jimhelps.com to schedule your complimentary coffee and a second opinion meeting. That's jimhelps.com or call 970-530-0556. The Retirement and IRA Show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier & Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. 